beauty and skincare is always a hot topic around here, and today I want to tell you about a new product line I've discovered that I think you will like, Exponent Beauty. Listeners of the show will receive 20% off their purchase. More details on that in a minute. Exponent Beauty is a skincare brand with a line of activated anti-aging serums that are clinically proven to reduce fine lines and wrinkles. The beauty of Exponent Beauty is their innovative form factor. The powders are activated with a quadruple hyaluronic acid serum in their patented precision-dosed dispenser. The packaging is gorgeous, and the dispenser itself is refillable, so it has also reduced plastic waste. Exponent Beauty's line of serums can be found in med spas and spas and dermatologists' office around the country. The line is dermatologist-recommended and clinically proven to reduce those fine lines and wrinkles, and to increase brightness and radiance, and to firm skin without irritation. No more expired or underutilized products with Exponent Beauty, just high-quality skincare with ingredients that work. Go to ExponentBeauty.com and use code TELL20 for 20% off a purchase of $100 or more. That's Exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, Beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y.com and use code TELL20, T-E-L-L, the numbers two zero for 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. to tell you. And you have 10 things to tell. This show is about connection with each other and with ourselves. And the hope is that the things we talk about here will be fuel for better conversations and a personal awareness. This is an interactive podcast. Each episode has a prompt and a topic that I want you to take to your journal, text to your best friend, or answer on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. Hello, my friends. Welcome to 10 things to tell you. If you're a new-ish listener, this episode is going to be a change in format quite a bit. If you've been listening for a while, you know that I don't do these types of episodes very often, just once a year, twice a year. I do an Ask Me Anything episode that is not meant to be, look at me, I'm the expert or anything like that, nor is it necessarily meant to be a Dear Abby slash Dear Laura sort of thing. Even though I actually think bossiness is my spiritual gift, I just love telling other people what to do with their life. But really, these Ask Me Anything episodes are meant to be a place where we can kind of catch up and update and close the loop on things we've touched on throughout the year over the past months. Also, I like to use these episodes as a place to answer questions that I've been getting on social media or on email that I kind of get over and over again. And this is like a great place to address those questions. And then lastly, like talk about some of the things that are fun to talk about or 
interesting to ask and answer, but that really wouldn't fill up a whole episode themselves. So this is kind of a grab bag of all of those things. Now, by nature of the beast, this is ask me anything. So most of these questions are aimed directly at me. So I will be sharing my opinions. But if you feel differently about something, I would love to hear from you on social media, in the Facebook group, the connection group. By all means, share your feelings on some of these questions and topics. And then as always with this show, feel free to take any of these questions or topics and use them as prompts or starting points for your own conversations or posts or journal entries, anything like that. So there's not just one question or topic or prompt for this episode. It's going to be a little bit of all kinds of things, but I hope that you will hear something in this varied discussion that piques your interest or makes you want to answer it for yourself. Okay, so I did a call for questions in the connection group on Facebook, which you can always join. I would love to see you in there. Also on the Instagram accounts, I asked for questions over there. So I collected a lot of different things. I'm not going to get to every single one of them, but I am going to try to pound out as many as I can. And I've broke them down into sort of general topics or discussions, sort of. They don't all fit that way. But just so you know, the journey that we're going to be on together for the next hour. We're going to talk a little bit about my new house. We're going to talk about books and reading, my favorite kinds of questions. I love that people ask books and reading questions. We're going to talk a little bit about tech. We're going to talk a little bit about purposeful no's. I love that question, the things that we purposefully say no to. We're going to talk about change. I got quite a few questions about changes, like what has changed in the pandemic? What has changed since my mommy blogger days? What has changed since my childhood? I also got some really interesting questions. One about what is my why? I'm excited to share that with you. And then someone else asked a little bit about our home invasion, the robbery that happened in our life three years ago this fall. They ask a little bit about that, which I am going to share. And then lastly, we are going to end on sharing itself. Do I feel like I'm too much sometimes? Do I have vulnerability hangovers? How did I become so comfortable sharing so much of myself? That's where we're going to end because those are amazing questions and that's what this show is all about. So let's start with some new house things. Kara sent me a voice memo with her question. Hi, this is Kara from New Jersey. I wonder how your moving to your new house has impacted your family dynamics and your daily life. I moved last October, and while I absolutely love my new house, I still find some of the changes a bit destabilizing, and I just wondered how you're coping with that. Thanks. So as I have shared here, there, and everywhere, Our family of four, my husband Jeff and I, our two kids, we moved back in May. We moved within Los Angeles just to another neighborhood after living in our old neighborhood, in our old house for 11 years. So it was a pretty big move for us. 
if you aren't in Los Angeles and you were like looking at a map, it doesn't seem like we moved that far. We are still technically in the Hollywood Hills. We're in a pretty vastly different section of them, but like on a map, it's not that different. But if you know Los Angeles at all, this city is so big, you know that neighborhood is king. Like neighborhood determines so many things, like where you're going to eat, where you're going to do your errands. It is so hard to get around LA. There's so much traffic and inconvenience in this city that I love that your neighborhood, the little bubble where you conduct most of your life, it really matters. And so for us, we'd lived in a beautiful old historic neighborhood previously that we loved, but it was really far from what had become our community. In our life in LA, our main community is built around our kids' school and the people that go to that school and the school activities. Like this is something that in a non-COVID time, we engage in multiple times a week. So living so far from that community where we spent a lot of time in the car getting back and forth, and also we couldn't participate in things like carpools or last minute spontaneous plans or whatever, because we were always having to plan our commute or how our day worked around drive time or the bus or things like that, that became a really big reason for why we made this move. It actually was not the only reason, but in answering Kara's question about how it has changed the way we live, that has been the absolute biggest change for the better that has come with moving closer to our community, which we put off for like five years. We really made it work for a long time because we loved our home before and because I was really resistant to making a move, making this kind of a change based on the kids' school. Like it felt like that was not a good enough reason to change up your whole life, especially when they're going to go to a different school for middle and high school. Like it felt like that's not a reason that you move. But because COVID... The pandemic, especially the Los Angeles lockdown in the pandemic, taught us a lot of life lessons. One of those for our family was about community and what that really means and what we really want for this next stage of our life. We did the little kid baby years in our older house, and now we're looking ahead. My kids this month turned 10 and 12, and so we are solidly in the big kid years heading towards teenager life. And we wanted that to feel and look a little different. We didn't want to be on the freeway so much. We didn't want to be in a hundred-year-old home that we loved and was amazing and charming and beautiful, but was a really different setup for family life. It was a lot of really small rooms. And our new house, which is not new construction, it is also decades old, but it has been sort of Frankensteined by the families that came before us. It's really been updated and added on to and all of these different changes that our new house has, even though it's not new, that feels like the way we want to live now, which is to say more modern spaces, not modern in style, it's sort of traditional in style, but modernized spaces like open floor plan, lots of light and openness. And so again, addressing Kara's question, That's the other part of how this has changed the flow of our life. The first part was being closer to our community, being able to 
carpool and drop by quickly and drop something off and I'll grab your kid, you grab mine. Like that whole thing has been like revolutionary to me in the last few months. I have not had that in any part of my parenthood. But the other part that has been a big change has been this physical house is so different. It is so open, which if you have ever lived in an open floor plan house, you might know has pluses and minuses. I did want it. I really did crave it after a year of a lockdown situation. But there are pluses and minuses to being able to kind of hide away, if you will, in your space versus like all kind of sharing the same space because the kitchen and the living room and the family room is all a big area. So I would never define this move as having being destabilizing because in a lot of ways, having a new space has been such a positive difference in our family for all the reasons that moving can shake things up, like decluttering, getting rid of things that no longer serve our family life or fit who we are anymore and also just like ushering in a fresh energy. Now I've also talked on this show about how I have been a little bit on the struggle bus in a mental health way and in a physical health way since we moved but those things are not a cause and effect other than just like the logistical stress of moving and whatever but being in our new house has been a real positive light in this year. It has been a real source of joy and comfort as these other things that have been going on that have been a little bit harder have happened in the background. The house and the move, I feel like, has been something that has really propelled us forward, has kept me from getting stuck or in too deep of an emotional hole because it has really just like ushered in new energy, fresh feelings, fresh paint, new perspectives, like literally and figuratively. So that's that answer. I didn't know that was going to be so many words. I promise I won't spend so many words. Well, I'm not going to promise that, actually. (laughs) We will plow forward. Okay, next we're going to talk about reading. I got several reading questions. You know, this is my favorite, favorite subject to talk about. I really love that this topic never gets old. Sarah asked, how do you track your reading? Do you write in your books? How do you decide what to read on Kindle versus paper versus audio? Okay, I track my books using two ways. I do use Goodreads, Even though I actually don't love Goodreads, I think it's a little bit clunky. It's not super user-friendly. I don't love the interface. And in fact, I'm on the internet all the time and I can end up being really confused on Goodreads. But I am there and I do keep track of the books I have read through Goodreads, even though my folders and shelves are a little bit messy. Because again, I don't super love the function there. But I try to always mark what I'm reading and what I have just finished. With a few exceptions, actually, if I don't want something I read to be public, which, you know, happens a few times a year, maybe. If I'm reading something like controversial that I don't, you know, I don't want anyone weighing in on the fact that I'm reading it or not. I do keep track my books on Goodreads. I also, and this is more important to me and something I reference 
a lot more often. Keep an Evernote list. Evernote is an app that I use on my phone and on my computer. They sync between the two. I use Evernote for so many things, personal, professional, for this show, for my book lists. Like Evernote is my favorite note-taking, note-keeping kind of app. And I have a note for every year. And I've been keeping it that way for, I don't know, six or seven years now, where it's just called, you know, Reading List 2021. And I break it down by month. So in October, I will list everything that I read with just a star rating. So it's literally just a list. I do not put like a review there or deeper thoughts on it, which sometimes on Goodreads, the app Goodreads, I will jot down a few quick thoughts, not a formal review, but I will just sort of put a few sentences about why I loved something or why something didn't really work for me. In my list that I reference really often that's on Evernote, I don't put any details. It's literally just a list. Now that's because I need it to reference it. Like I need to see what I read when really quickly without wading through any commentary for my own purposes or when I'm planning, you know, book episodes for this show or if somebody asks me something great that I've read lately, like I pull it out as a quick reference and I open that list like, I mean, a couple times a week. Like I'm always in that list. So that's how I track my reading. Yes, I write in my books, mainly nonfiction. I almost never write in fiction books, in novels, or even in memoir, things that are pretty narrative-like. I don't write in them unless there is like a particularly beautiful passage or really profound thought, then I might But honestly, that's not how my brain takes in fiction too often. And I don't like to read a lot of like beautiful flowery books that are going to have poetic paragraphs. (laughs) It's not my, my normal style of reading. And so it's pretty rare that I write in a fiction book. I do write in my nonfiction books all the time. But I don't like write notes or anything. It's mostly just like underlines or stars or, or, you know, I make a little note by a paragraph or something like that in my nonfiction because I want to go back and reference it quickly without, you know, having to pour through the whole thing. I want to see quickly if I return to it what resonated with me. Which also brings me to the last part of her question, which was how do you decide what to read on Kindle versus paper versus audio? Well, audio is easy. I don't like audiobooks. I do listen to a few books a year. Almost always nonfiction. I cannot understand fiction on audio very well at all. I'm terrible at it. Also, I just don't like it. But there are always a few nonfiction that I will read because that's the only way I'm going to take that book in. Like I'm not going to sit down with it and read it, but I really want the information or a lot of people are talking about it or something like that. I might grab that on audio. Also, I might do an audio book if I'm doing something that's going to take a long time. So I'm on a really long plane ride and this will make it go by more quickly. I'm doing like a big project, you know, I'm cleaning out my closet or the garage or something like all weekend. And I like to have kind of a set thing that I'm listening to through that task. That's the only time I do audio. So Kindle versus hard copy. I vastly prefer reading on my Kindle. Vastly, vastly, vastly. I will read more. I will read more quickly. I can read at night. My husband goes to bed before I do most nights. So I can read it with the light off. I can read it in any kind of travel situation because my paper white, which that's what I have now is a Kindle paper white. 
though I'm toying with the idea of getting an oasis for Christmas. But I throw that thing in my purse or my backpack or my fanny pack because it's small and light enough to do that. And I just love it. Like I'm obsessed with it. It's my favorite gadget. I would save it in a fire over my phone probably. I love the Kindle. Now my caveat to that is it's mostly fiction or memoir, again, narrative, that I love to read on Kindle. If it is nonfiction, something that I want to underline, which I know you can highlight and stuff, which I do use that function on my Kindle if I need to, but I take in the information differently when I have it in hard copy than when I have it on the Kindle. So for me, reading on the Kindle, I want to be reading a story, like a real story. And I almost always have one of those going at any time. Also, it's a clutter kind of thing. Like I have no problem buying a book on Kindle that will be just like a beach read for me or a weekend read for me that I don't want in hard copy. (laughs) Even though I own thousands of books, literally thousands of books, I only keep physical books that have meant something to me or that I really liked or that I haven't gotten to yet. I give away or donate all books that do not mean something to me. And of course, I often am reading something that doesn't mean anything to me deeply, like a quick thriller or something like that. Like, I just want to read that on my Kindle. I don't want to then have to deal with the physical book of it. Now, literary fiction or meaningful fiction, I do love to have in hard copy. And if I already kind of know that I'm going to love it, like for example, this very week, Elizabeth Strout has a new book coming out. I ordered that in hard copy because she's one of my favorite writers. And I am probably likely going to want to have that hard copy book to keep. But often I will read a book on Kindle. And then if I really love it, and I did not know how much I was going to love it, if I really love it, it's going to be one of my best books of the year. I will then purchase it in hard copy also. Does that mean I have purchased this book twice? Yes, it does. If I super loved it, it's worth it to me to have basically paid double at that point. And I have no regrets supporting the publishing industry in that way, supporting the author in that way, having bought their book twice, if I love it. Okay, more reading questions. Helen asked, how do you handle fitting in your daily reading when your children were younger? My daughter is four and an only child and doesn't always want to play independently while I read for 20 minutes. Well, this is a broad answer because everyone's, you know, family dynamics are different and Kid personalities are different, and there's a lot of factors at play in this question and this kind of thing. But I will just tell you what I did is I had to train my kids that when I was doing my 20 minutes of reading, that's what I was doing. Like they knew at a pretty young age not to come bother me with something like, you know, silly when I was reading. But again, my kids were sort of amenable to that. Like they, are the type of kids who didn't pitch a fit about that. And I'm the type of parent who enforced it to the best of my ability. Again, this is totally a family dynamics and parenting style sort of situation. But at four years old, I was turning on the TV. I mean, I had my expectations (laughs) set. Like I didn't expect them to entertain themselves for 20 minutes of reading. I fully put on Yo Gabba Gabba or Frozen or whatever was popular when my kids were four and let them watch TV or let them watch a little video on the iPad or something like that. Like it wasn't like they were perfectly behaved angels. I was like essentially bribing them with a screen or something 
while I read. As they got a little bit older, this was just a normal part of our family life. Like I read my book at least once a day that my children see. And I state it out loud. Like I'm going to read my book for 20 minutes and then I'm going to cook dinner or whatever. Like even now when I don't necessarily need to announce that to my family, I do. They see me reading on my Kindle mostly and they know that that's a part of my day and really not to interrupt me unless truly needed when I'm reading. So taking into account your own kid at four years old or I mean any age really, you have to have like a certain amount of expectations for what they're going to do. I would never have expected my children to draw and color silently and beautifully when they were four for 20 minutes. They probably wouldn't have done that. I had to turn on the screen for them. But I didn't mind doing that. Like they can watch a TV show while I read. It's a really important part of my day. Now, April asked, I often find myself wanting to read nonfiction because I think I can learn from them. But then I read them and I find that I almost never actually use anything I've read from them to actually make changes. Do you find that reading nonfiction actually helps you grow and change? Is there a way to be intentional about how to implement the things you learn? Isn't this such a good and interesting question? Okay, she just says nonfiction in that question, but I'm inferring from everything else she said in the question that she really means like self-help specifically, some kind of change, growth, geared nonfiction. And I will say right now that for me, self-help nonfiction, which I do enjoy, any kind of like not inspirational because I need it to have like action steps, but like productivity books, business books, that kind of thing. I love those type of books, but they're not prescriptive to me. Like I don't like take notes and then I'm not going to implement like a one, two, three program, for example. I know that some people do read nonfiction or self-help in that way and it's like a really guiding force. But for me, I read nonfiction almost every single morning and I'm just taking in the general ideas. And yes, to answer April directly, I do think it changes me but maybe not in the way that she's expecting it to change. So like I, again, I'm not starting to then follow a system that totally changes my life, but I might take a few very specific nuggets from their overall ideas. Those nuggets, I will implement those changes or there's something that I will think about long after the book is done. Examples of this are, Atomic Habits, that book from a few years ago, there's one section, this is just one section of the whole book that talks about thinking about your habits as identity, that it's all tied to identity instead of to like self-discipline or something like that. And the way that he wrote about that was really illuminating for me, really, really illuminating. And so I still think about that one little section that was maybe 15 pages of several hundred pages worth of the book. That's what I really took away from that book. The book I just finished, Radical Candor by Kim Scott, that is about being a boss. There's a section in there where she talks about having to have hard conversations. And that is one thing that I think I will implement and also just that I will take from that book. Again, that was just one little section in the whole book. Now, I'm glad I read the whole book. Like you can't just read the one thing and process it in the same way that you would if you read the whole thing and then reflect on what stands out. Another example here is that book Burnout that was very popular. I took a lot from that book Burnout, but you know what I remember the most a couple of years later is the section on completing the stress cycle. 
think that was a whole chapter, but there was lots of interesting stories and statistics and whatever from burnout. But like, I don't recall all of that. I didn't implement all of that. I just really needed to hear that part about completing the stress cycle. And that's still what I remember all these years later. But if I had only read that stress cycle chapter, if that was all I had read of that whole book, I don't think I wouldn't have gotten as much from it because here's the second part of that question. I think that reading these kind of books where you're learning something, and this is a a bigger kind of umbrella of nonfiction. Maybe you're reading about history or politics or race or anything that's like educating you. This also applies to what I'm about to say. Even if you cannot recall like very specifically the statistics or the bullet points or the action items from the book, I really do believe that our psyche is taking in these words and these ideas and that it is moving the needle for us little by little. Even if you like don't follow that book's plan, for example. Let me use my own book as an example. If you read my book, Share Your Stuff, I'll Go First, you may never engage in the actual 10 questions that I lay out in the book. I give you exactly 10 questions that I want you to literally answer. But even if you read the whole book and you don't ever actually literally answer those questions in person or in a journal or anything, hopefully you walked away from that book with the ideas around sharing yourself and how that can change you. And that is seeping into your psyche and your actions the next time that you feel tempted to share something with someone. You might not even immediately recall that you got that idea or those thoughts from my book. But I do believe that it slowly and subtly might have changed the way that you approach sharing in the future. And I think that's true with all of these books, productivity books, like even if you don't do the whole thing, really reading or listening to someone talk passionately about productivity, it ultimately does shape the way you're feeling about productivity. Like if you're connecting to it, I suppose if you're not connecting to it, then none of this matters. But I don't think you can beat yourself up from, you know, really liking a book as you read it and then realizing two months later, like, yeah, I don't, I didn't do anything with that book. You don't know that you didn't do anything with that book. You may think you're having an original idea later about sharing yourself and not realizing that it actually came from listening to me preach at you about sharing yourself. You see what I mean? And then lastly on this topic, if you were only reading nonfiction books as a to-do item, as a chore, as a checklist kind of thing, well, stop. Like if the root of April's question is that she's not getting anything out of these books, she doesn't think that she is growing or changing after reading these books, then stop reading these books. Turn your attention to something else that you do think helps you grow and change. Maybe it's fiction. Maybe it's just listening to podcasts instead of, you know, reading nonfiction. Maybe it's none of those things. Maybe you just don't like it. If you don't like it, stop. Reading nonfiction or self-help or growth-based things is not a requirement to be a good person or to grow and change. You can certainly grow and change without the books. With sunshine, outdoor activities, and so many fun things to do outside, it is impossible not to enjoy all of these good weather days up ahead. Of course, we all know that more sun and fun means more sweating, and yes, more odor. 
That's why I'm excited to tell you about Lumi. Lumi is the first of its kind in the full body deodorant world and is seriously safe to use on any and every part of your body. It was created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how regular body odor was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben free. It is also pH balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of fresh scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice, like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code U at lumideodorant.com. That equates to 40% off your starter pack when you visit Lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant, D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T, com and use code U Y O U. Okay, moving on out of the reading section and into some more general questions and then some tech questions. On Instagram, Rachel asked me, "What are some purposeful no's or don't do's in your life that help you say yes to what you do want to do?" I love this question, even though I don't think I have like amazingly solid answers here. However, I am kind of a rule follower and a personal rule maker, boundary maker, if you will. And that shows up in so many areas of my life. Everything from like, you know, I don't engage with social media profiles that don't have a profile picture. I mean, that is completely arbitrary and just my own thing. But like, you have to draw the line somewhere. (laughs) That's one of my lines. Or right now, like I talked about on episode 136, Three Changes I'm Making to Find Balance, I'm currently having a personal rule that I am not drinking alcohol at home at all. I am drinking alcohol only when I'm out to eat or with friends or some kind of an occasion. This is just a temporary boundary that I've put in place for me that is just a no for where I am right now. So like I have these little rules sprinkled throughout my life. And then I would say there are some bigger rules that come in that are absolutely seasonal. So I read Rachel's question earlier and I was trying to think of like what rules have been consistent in my adulthood or in the last decade or something. And I couldn't really come up with anything solid, but I do have a few I can share that were circumstantial and sort of became no's for me. One of those was recently, just in the last couple of years, I have declined to volunteer at all at my kids' school. Now, this is not hard and fast. Like, if there was a specific need that I could fill, I would absolutely step into that because, as I already said, that community really matters to me. But from a time and energy perspective, the first few years we were at this school, I was on multiple volunteer committees I was like the co-chair of the library. I was in charge of the lost and found one year. I shared some room mom duties one year that put me as the field trip parent volunteer. Like I did a lot the first few years we were there and I enjoyed it. My kids were littler. It was a way for me to make friends and establish myself into a community I cared about. Like it was, it was great. My workload amped up. And also my interest levels changed. And so I felt like I said one year, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to take a year off from doing any school volunteer 
duties. And then that sort of spiraled. They functioned on just well without me. (laughs) Now, I will say it is a luxury to be able to step away from volunteering in this way because there are lots of parent volunteers at our school. In fact, there's a waiting list for people who want to be room parent and all of that kind of thing. So I did not have to like go through a whole guilt or weirdness about it because I knew there was a lot of people who wanted and could step into that role. Obviously, there are situations in our life where we are volunteering our time or our energy or our money. And stepping away from that would be a much bigger decision. It would maybe leave a gap for that organization or whatever. So that's was an easy one for me to make, but I know that that's not easy for everyone in every sort of similar situation. Another no that I started to make, I took time off from, was going to conferences. Now, sort of a bigger picture story that I don't need to give you all the details in, but I became kind of a conference junkie for a while. This is tied into when I talk about my years of loneliness, which is super valid. And I was meeting people on the internet during the time that I was lonely and I'd started a blog and really was struggling to find local friends here in LA. And so the women that I was connecting with were almost exclusively online. And so the only way I could meet up with them or meet them in person or sort of foster those relationships was by going to these blogging conferences, these online conferences. I've been to podcast conferences, like all the things. This was really a way for me to not only learn about my craft, but also like make friends and have in-person connections. And that really filled a void for me for a long time. That was super important. But then I kind of started to realize that not only was this an expensive and time-consuming way to keep up my friendships, I'd also become a little bit of like a information junkie and not in a healthy way. Like I was constantly trying to figure out how I could make what I was doing online like better and bigger and all of these things. And I kind of got into a bad headspace around it, to be honest. Like when you find yourself in a constant comparison trap or like nothing you do, no benchmark you could ever meet will ever be enough, then you might need to back off on like the conferences that are constantly telling you how to be more. Now, not all conferences are that way. But again, I decided to just instill a temporary no, no to conferences for a year or two, just to sort of reassess my place in that world and just to take a break from it. And both of those things no longer volunteering at the school, and stepping away from conferences of all kinds. Those were good, healthy no's for me. And they allowed me to, as Rachel asked in her question, give better yeses to other things. Invest in some friendships that didn't require my presence at a weekend conference. That kind of thing. Speaking of friendships, Megan asked on Instagram, how are your friendships? And I think she is referencing the fact that I talked a few times during the pandemic and then also back on episode 104 called Old Friends, New Friends, I talked about how I had some real friendship struggles in 2020. They weren't all exactly pandemic related, but the pandemic did sort of bring maybe some issues to the forefront And some of this had to do with my own anxiety and how I don't communicate when I'm having some high anxiety. I really like 
close off a lot of communication and that ends up hurting friends' feelings. Some of it was me truly dropping the ball and hurting some feelings, being hurtful completely on accident. I would never purposely hurt a friend, but really not holding their situation or their opinions with care in my communication or in my actions. So I had talked a lot about that on the show last winter because I feel like that kind of played out in 2020. And then also I have a whole text highlight on my Instagram where we talk about the expectations around texting in friendship and like if we can be expected to text right back or like how hurtful is it if you don't text back for a week and the different personality types and the different relationship dynamics that cause that to be a bigger problem or not. I had this whole texting in friendship conversation. That, by the way, has really changed my you know, perception about what communication in relationship means. Like my old view that I had shared was sort of just like texting has made us completely available to one another all the time and it shouldn't be that way. Like our mothers, our grandmothers, they had friends that they talked on the phone to maybe every day, but it was just one or two people and it was a phone call or writing letters or that kind of thing, being available via text all the time to me is problematic in some ways. And I really dug in on that for lots of reasons. The availability piece that we're supposed to be completely available to one another all the time. The fact that we use one another as Google, we shoot off quick questions to friends that we want them to stop what they're doing and reply to us. Why is that a norm? And also, again, back to the mental health piece, for me, having a ton of texts and a ton of incoming communication really ramps up my anxiety, or if I'm already feeling really anxious, it really makes it worse. So for a long time, I I really dug my heels in on this idea of like expectations and texting in friendship. But I have softened on that stance as I have heard from people that I really care about. They have made their case of what that quick communication means to them and what it means to them when I don't text them back, but they can see that I'm on Instagram. So I'm obviously holding my phone. I'm obviously comfortable talking to strangers on social media, but I've ghosted them on text. Like what that feels like to them. My heart has softened in all of these ways because I used to really compartmentalize that. For me, social media is work. It's different than real life relationships and expecting an answer on text. And honestly, there is a meeting in the middle here. I haven't completely become some kind of text machine. I have not. I am not going to be that. But I have tried to be more mindful about what it feels like to be in a friendship and to not get a response. And it's imperfect. I have friends who have also had to learn that not getting a response from me is probably not personal. They have heard me on my side of it of what communication overwhelm does to me, et cetera, et cetera. So this is an ongoing conversation. But to answer Megan's question directly, how are my friendships? They are so much better right now. All of my friendships across the board, I think, are better now than they were a year ago. A year ago, I was really feeling a lot of tension in some of my favorite relationships because we didn't see eye to eye on some things, you know, politically or about the pandemic or texting, you know, I mean, 
little things and big things both, I just was feeling like there was more tension and drama than there needed to be. And I think now a year later for lots of reasons, because we've talked about it or because things have just loosened up or shaken out. And also because in a very natural way, I feel like people have reassessed their friendships in the last 18 months. I think this has been a huge part of what the pandemic has wrought. For better or for worse, people have realized who they want to spend time with, who they want to pour energy into, what kind of things they're willing to let go, what friendship really means, and is it really about constant communication or is it about deep connection or a combination of all those things. I really think everyone around me has had some friendship angst in the last year and a half. Maybe now most of us are either on the other side of it or kind of coming out of that fog with some clarity. At least that has been my experience. This is actually a topic that I would love to hear more from you about. If you want to share on social or in the Facebook group or something, I think this is just a really big conversation right now. And I would love to hear more about where you are with your friends. But for me, 2020 definitely took its toll in that area. But I think things feel better, healthier, more loving, more open-hearted, <laughs> holding a lot of things more loosely than what we were gripping onto last year, if that makes sense. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about tech. I got some tech questions. Hillary asked, in your community and with you and your husband's jobs, how do you handle tech with your kids? I'm assuming that she means because my husband works in the entertainment industry, making movies and TV shows. I work online, like solidly on social media. <laughs> and then, of course, making this show and things like that. So I do think people wonder if we have different rules than other families, other parents. Um Caitlin also asked about kids and tech. I got a few questions about kids and tech. So I'll just answer this sort of generally to share a few things. One is I have nieces and nephews in the middle of the country. We have nieces and nephews on the east coast, east side of the country. So all that to say, spread out throughout the U.S. And I do not think that we handle our tech stuff that differently than you know, the other families that we know pretty well. In fact, I would say Jeff and I are maybe more conservative with our screen rules and screen time than families that we know in other parts of the country when I think some people would think that would be opposite. But our kids don't have phones yet and they're 12 and 10. And I know, at least in Oklahoma, a lot of the trends there have kids getting phones a lot earlier Sometimes I know that's for like logistics purposes. If you have to be away from your kids a lot, if you're in a divorced family, like you need to be able to communicate. And we have this amazing technology that is available to us. So I know that sometimes it's not always about your philosophy on screens. We are able to hold a little bit of a harder line on no phones, no screen time during the week because our school community kind of holds that line. I have no idea why our school is coming up so many times in this episode, but I think a lot of the things that matter in our family are are built around what's happening in you know our school community, which has also become our social community. I think it's a lot easier to not give in to certain screen pressure and things like that if nobody else is doing it either. So 
There are some exceptions, of course, but the school kind of lets themselves be the bad guy to be like no phones for kids until they graduate sixth grade. Certainly no phones or screens or tech on campus besides school-related tech, of course. And so that just makes it easier to be like, the school says no phones, so no phones. We did have stricter screen rules in our family, like absolutely no screens on the weekdays, etc. Like just, you know, some boundaries in place like that. We were a lot stricter about that pre-pandemic, which I'm sure has been a huge thing for a lot of families. Once we were locked down and at home, once our screens became our only source of communication with friends and for our entertainment and things like that, we relaxed on a bunch of those things. In fact, we ended up getting the kids iPads within the last year, which they had not had before. We had not let them have any sort of their own screen at all. Until this last year, they used our iPads, the adult iPads, if they wanted to watch a movie or do something like that, make a little fun movie using an app or something. But when we were in lockdown for so long, and this was the way that they were communicating with their friends on Zoom, on some gaming that we allowed, again, in the last year that we had no intention of ever allowing gaming this young, but it was the only way they could talk to anyone. So we did bend a lot of our tech rules. Now, I will say that Jeff and I are probably a lot more liberal about what we let our kids watch and read than some of our friends who don't let their kids watch any kind of violence or anything like PG-13 and up. And we have not censored that so much. I certainly don't censor anything my kids read ever. I was not censored in what I read. And that was a huge, really defining part of my identity and remains a part of my identity that I started reading Stephen King and such when I was 10 years old in the fourth grade. And so I've always felt really strongly that I will not censor what my kids read. I probably alone would have been a bit more careful about what I let them watch just because, you know, visual things are very different for me than reading things. And I'm very sensitive to visual things. And I think that kids are too. And so I probably would have been more sensitive to that. But my husband, Jeff, who makes visual art, he started exposing the kids to classic or older movies, like a long time ago when they were younger. And then they sort of ventured into like certain genres of movies. They watched like a bunch of 80s movies and then they got really into World War II movies. And then like they have a thing together where Jeff and the kids watch a lot of movies together. We all watched Marvel, which, you know, there's definitely adult themes and violence in in those things. But within some kind of reason, I know my reason and appropriate lines are going to be different than other people's, but we do not overly restrain what they read or what they watch. I am much more concerned in general, not that anyone asked, but I'll just tack it on to the end here. I am much, much more concerned about the damage that can be done with kids on social media when they get into that and just like online bullying or harassing or, you know, posting things and deleting them and perfectionism and like all the huge number of issues that are going to come along with phones and all of that kind of tech, like I'm much more concerned about that than I am about what kind of movies and TV shows they watch or what they read or even gaming to a certain extent I'm less concerned about than the pitfalls and the hard things about, you know, the interpersonal part of 
screens and such. Okay, so here is a voice memo from Danita who sent this in. Thank you for sending in your voice memo question. I thought this one was really good. Hi, Lara. I'm Danita from Denver, and I know you're really into nonfiction and a little bit of self-help, self-development. So I'm wondering if you have explored Simon Sinek's Find Your Why, Start With Why, and if so, what is your why? So I did read that book, What Is Your Why? I read it several years ago. I do love me a good business book. And while I wouldn't say I totally connected to that specific book, I do like this kind of question that Simon Sinek is posing. What is your why? And this question, this idea is brought up in all kinds of different ways and personal development and business books and all these different things is kind of getting down to a personal core value or a business's core value, like what everything should really point to. And that will really help you make your decisions and things like that. And I would say I've had years working online where that wasn't very clearly defined. And sometimes that was a problem and sometimes that was less of a problem. But I will say in the last few years, as I was working on pitching the book that became Share Your Stuff. As I was working on creating this podcast, this is my third podcast I've been on. And so the last few years, I've really forced myself to kind of clarify my message or my purpose in putting all this content out into the world. And I would say, I've never really articulated this to you, the person consuming this content, but I believe that my why is all pointing back to alleviating loneliness or trying to alleviate loneliness in myself and in others. The how we do that is about sharing ourselves, and I write a lot about sharing ourselves. But one step deeper than that is, well, why do we want to share ourselves? And it's to be known. Well, why do we want to be known or seen? Because we're lonely. We feel alone. Everything in my online life started with that. I started my original blog, Hollywood Housewife, out of a season of loneliness when I lived in Los Angeles, had a new baby, and had no friends. So while I did not think of that as a business tagline, you know, strategy or anything back then, looking back as I've realized like everything that happened from starting that blog to creating this podcast to writing my book and everything along the way, started with loneliness and not wanting other people to feel that loneliness or recognizing that so many people do feel that loneliness and that there are ways to get out of it. There are ways that we can help ourselves from feeling alone in the world. Now, I have no degree in this. I have no like true expertise other than my own life experience and talking to a lot of lonely people and a lot of people on the internet for a very, very long time. But if sharing yourself is the key to connection, the why, why we want to be connected, why we want to share ourselves, is to alleviate loneliness. That's my why. In myself, it forcing myself to put my heart out on the line over and over again and to model that for others and to show others that it really does work, that sharing ourselves in a certain way really does work, even if our first step is just sharing ourselves with ourselves in a journal, even if it is not putting our heart on the line, but just acknowledging our own 
thoughts and feelings and very being to our own selves. That is often step one for people. And so that too is pointing towards a life less lonely. And so that, you, there you have it. That is my why. I feel a little like nervous that I said all that. I've never really said that quite so boldly, but that was a good question. Okay, last big section is about change. A lot of people want to talk about change. And I think even though this is sort of a nice, fun, interesting topic, change always is, but I think a lot of us are in a real changing mode. I think the pandemic has shaken a lot of things loose in us. It has made us reevaluate things. It has made us change or want to change. And so this feels like a really extra relevant topic right now. But I got a few questions on my own personal changes that I'm going to try to blaze through a little bit while also talking about, you know, change in a big picture way. Emily asked me, how are you different now from your Hollywood Housewife days? Well, I started Hollywood Housewife in 2010, January of 2010. So it has been almost 12 years. I was 30 years old when I started Hollywood Housewife. So, you know, it's a big difference. Your 30s are a big, it's a really big decade. So from 30 to 42, yeah, a lot has changed. And I feel like people, you know, really characterize your 30s as being the find yourself decade or getting more and more sure of yourself. And I definitely did that. So that by the time you arrive to 40, you know, so many people I know say they feel really sure of who they are when they get to their early 40s. And it, you know, they're able to let go of all the things they are not and all the things that you care about when you're 25 and caring so much about what other people think of you and caring so much about, I don't know, maybe like being cool or having the right friends or job or whatever. Like by the time you get to your early 40s, like you've dropped so much of that pretense or so much of that particular striving. And I believe that to be absolutely true. That is a true characterization. But the 30s, or at least for me going through my 30s, it was hard, hard work. Like that journey, what I just described from A to B is no walk in the park. For me, it was enormously difficult. My 30s were so much harder than my 20s. The first half of my 30s, I had a baby on my hip and a lot of anxiety and depression. It wasn't so much about finding myself as it was about just like getting through it. I was significantly less philosophical in the first part of my 30s because I just didn't have the capacity to be. You know, having the ability to navel gaze or really like (laughs) be philosophical about life or listen to your intuition and all of those things, like those things are a luxury. Sure, they're free and everybody can do them if they are capable. And not everyone is and not every season of life allows for it. So I would say that a very marked difference between my Hollywood housewife days as a person is there is an ease to me now. Ease is my word of the year, by the way, which we should talk more about eventually. But there is an ease to my being that absolutely was not present in my blogging 
days. I was striving so hard. I was trying so hard to make friends, make a writing career, be a good mom, rise above my mental health, which is ridiculous. You can't rise above mental health. Like I was just trying so hard every day. Every day had a lot of effort. And of course, life is hardly effortless now, but there is an ease to my spirit that did not used to be there. Again, I think that comes with age and experience. And part of going through all the experiences that you go through up to 40 is that some of the novelty wears off. And that, I mean that as a good thing, in a good way. I went through so many years where I felt like I had to, you know, go to every party, pursue every opportunity, really make the most of every day and every situation. I know we get a lot of those messages in those striving years. And I, you know, had various degrees of success with that. Like I was glad that I did so much trying, but eventually you get to the point where you're like, yeah, like I don't, I'm not missing out. I have no more FOMO. Like I don't need to go to every cool sounding party or invitation. I don't need to stress that I haven't gotten any cool sounding parties or invitations. Like I've lived long enough to know like things are going to come and go. I don't need to try so hard for just the basics of being. And when I look back at some of the things I wrote when I was writing on my blog as Hollywood Housewife, when I look at how much like white knuckling there was to my being, how much simmering anger was underneath. Like I just felt desperate and mad and just very, very tense a lot of times in those years. And I can sort of see it in my writing. I can see in what I chose to write about back then. I held a lot of things closely, not just for like privacy's sake, but also for just like you know, it was just stressful. There was a lot of tension. And I don't feel that anymore. I feel a looseness to my writing. I feel a looseness to my being. Clearly, as already discussed, it doesn't mean things are perfect. It doesn't mean I don't have hard seasons. But it feels different than I did then. I hold a lot of things differently and more loosely. And that's a positive change from my Hollywood Housewife days. Becky then asked about change. How are you different coming out of the pandemic than going in? This is such a good question and could be its own episode and, you know, probably will be one of the prompts for the end of the year, something along these kind of lines, because I feel like all of us can be asking this question. And I feel like we asked it a little bit when we marked, you know, the one year mark. Of course, the pandemic is not over, so it's not like we're saying you know, looking back and being like, what have we learned and tie it all up with a bow? This is still so ongoing, but it, you know, it is a different leg of it, a different phase of it. And so Becky's question, how are you different coming out of the pandemic than going in? That's a biggie. That's such a big question. The main thing that I can think of is that I never want to be that busy again. In early 2020, my plate was so full. Now, it was mostly good things. So this isn't even a complaint. I was in a great place in early 2020. I was about to turn in my book. Jeff was about to start shooting his movie. Our kids were thriving. But things were very 
very full. Like we had a lot of activities, a lot of events, a lot of to-dos. And of course, like, you know, so many of us, March of 2020, it was like hitting a brick wall. Like suddenly there was nothing on the calendar. And we still had a to-do list, but it was a radically different to-do list than it was before. And it was a scary and difficult time. But when I look back and and think about how I would do it differently or what I have learned about it, is that a very small silver lining of what came out of a terrible pandemic that I, I am not glad for in any way. But if we are trying to just find some kind of silver lining here, I do think there was a reset for so many of us in so many ways, the ways that we work, you know, how we work at home, how we gather, how we meet, if it's possible to truly connect on a screen, how we live in our homes, how we take care of one another or don't. It really changed for our family. And I think the culmination of it is how we ended up with a new house, but it really kind of changed the way we want to live. I say that as our fall has already become quite busy, definitely busier than anything has happened in the last 18 months. My kids' sports are going with some restrictions in place, but they're going. Social events are starting to come back. I mean, definitely the last month, there have been more things on our schedule than have been in a year and a half, and I'm feeling it. Even though it's not as full of a schedule and I really want to be mindful of not getting back to so much of a full schedule, that is my answer to the question of how I'm different coming out of it versus going in. I am coming out of it with like a truly different relationship to time, to the hours in my day, to the time I have with my kids before they leave home. Time has really shifted for me. Maybe you can relate. Okay, now here's a really interesting question from Elizabeth, and it's specific to me and something that happened in my life, but it is going to lead me into our last little section about sharing. So Elizabeth asks, episode 34, The Robbery, was one of the most raw, open, accessible shows or things I have ever encountered. I hesitate to say vulnerable because that's a complicated word, but it was horrifying and lovely at the same time. I know you took a year to discuss, but how or why did you decide to share something like that? And did you have any regrets after you did? Had you already written your manuscript pitch at that point? Okay, so what Elizabeth is talking about is in the fall of 2018, we had a home invasion. We were robbed and it was the middle of the day and I was at home. So this happened in September of 2018. I did not share that it had happened until several weeks after it had happened. It was so devastating to me. It was such a difficult event for me. I was completely unharmed. I never saw the robber. I'll tell you that if you have not listened to that episode. It was not traumatic in that I was harmed or I encountered the person. I was in the backyard the whole time. I came inside and he had broken down the door and really ransacked our home. But I didn't have the primary trauma of having encountered him. I had sort of the secondary trauma of all the rest of the situation. But I didn't share online that it had happened at all until I did put it on Instagram a few weeks later because I was, you know, going through a thing. And 
I do share myself. I do share our life. And it was going to be impossible to just like keep posting regular normal stuff with this other thing in the background. So I did end up sharing it uh, without much detail and and without much follow-up or anything on Instagram. And then I waited about a year to really talk about it. So on the year anniversary, like that week, around that time, I put out a podcast episode of this show, episode 34, talking about the whole thing. I shared the story. I talked about how it had changed me because it absolutely changed me. And then, of course, if you have read my book, Share Your Stuff, I'll Go First, I also write about it very honestly in a chapter called What Are You Afraid Of? Because for me, one of the things that I was the most fearful of in my whole entire life was home invasion. And so then when it happened, a sort of unusual thing that doesn't happen to most people, how does that feel? So I wrote about that in the book. So that is what Elizabeth is asking about. Her question is asking, how did you decide to share something like that? And did I have any regrets after I did it? So there was never a question that I would probably share about it eventually. I mean, not that I like catalog those things in my mind, but I'm a sharer, if you haven't noticed. And so even if it takes me a while, in this case, a year, you know, I eventually do share a lot of things in my life, as long as it's something that I can speak to specifically me and isn't, you know, telling someone else's story or harming another human in the telling, which in the robbery situation, I had the full support of my husband to talk about that and write about it in the book. And I just think it's in my nature to share. Now, I do not often share in real time. That is a caveat to all of my sharing stuff is that I do not think a person has to share in real time all the time. Now, I think it's very problematic to always share with 2020 hindsight or to always share in a way where you can wrap up an event with a lesson and a bow and whatever. There is benefits to sharing in real time. But for me, I I am better at sharing a modified real time. Like I just need a little bit of a distance from something. It takes me a while to process things, especially process the way I'm going to share something, which might be different than if I'm just like pouring my heart out to a girlfriend, right? I might think less carefully about every word if I'm in a real person conversation versus how I'm going to share something in a book or on this show. I want to share in a way that is true. I want to choose my words in a way that really reflects the experience and honors my thoughts and feelings and is presented in a way that I am hopeful that I won't have future regret over. That's sort of my hang up with sharing in real time is that sometimes your most raw, most unfiltered real time sharing, whether this is online or in person, you might regret what that looked like if you don't take time to process or get some clarity or or whatever. And so if you're a real time sharer, I mean, yay, I'm all for sharing. But for me, I needed a lot of time on that one. My healing wasn't for public consumption. The trauma that I was going through in the immediate aftermath those first few months was absolutely not for anyone else's consumption. But to answer Elizabeth's question, I guess I don't think there was much of a chance that I wouldn't have shared that very big thing that happened in my life and how it informed 
some of our family decisions and like how I worked from home after that. And like, there was a lot about that story that remains hard and scary. So I'm glad I shared it both on the show and in the book. I don't have any regrets about sharing it. I mean, there is always this natural fear we have, I think, of when we put something out into the universe with our words, it's natural to like worry that you're going to then manifest the thing again or like in a superstitious way that like something, some cosmic thing is going to like a boomerang and you know, bite you in the butt because you shared. I understand that impulse. I know a lot of us have it, but I really, you know, try to get over that. I had those thoughts of like, does talking about this make it more likely to happen again? Or what if it gives me more anxiety to talk about it or something like that? Like it's harmful to me to talk about it. Like I did think about those things. I wasn't careless about that but I don't believe that that's how the universe or God or karma works in that sharing from a place of truth will manifest a a tragedy I, I just don't think that's how it works so no no regrets but this does tie us into these last few questions about sharing in general Molly asked do you ever struggle with feeling too much after sharing your stuff And Adrian asked, do you ever get vulnerability hangovers? And Elizabeth, a different Elizabeth, asked, how do you make yourself comfortable with sharing so much of yourself? So I'll work backwards. Elizabeth asked, how do you make yourself comfortable with sharing so much of yourself? Practice. Practice, practice, practice. I've been sharing myself online for 12 years. And before that, I shared myself in person to all of my friends, to my husband, to my sister, to my mom. Like, I'm a sharer. If you've listened to any of the episodes with my mom or listened to the secret tapes with my family members, they will tell you like, I am a natural sharer. So part of it is a personality type or like a genetic thing, but also for like the online portion, for example, I practice sharing myself. (laughs) Like I practice, I've been doing it a long time. I don't expect people who maybe want to tiptoe into sharing themselves to be good at it right away or to feel good about doing it. I don't know that there's like a being good at it or not. But like, it won't feel totally natural at the beginning if you haven't been sharing yourself. It is scary. It's like jumping off the high dive every time. That's the only way, even if you have a natural tendency towards it, that's the only way to get better at sharing yourself is to share yourself. The middle question from Adrienne is, do you ever get vulnerability hangovers all the time? Yes, I get vulnerability hangovers in person, like after a particularly big conversation with a friend or my husband or, you know, a family member, anything like that. I absolutely like have a few quiet days following that. But more sort of dramatic or even harder is the vulnerability hangover after sharing myself more publicly. So on this show, on social media, anything like that, I sometimes have to turn off my phone for a whole weekend and kind of get recentered. I sometimes are like kind of weepy the next morning. Like it feels like hormones, but it's not really hormones. Like I feel a little bit, you know, I feel very sensitive the next day or for a few days. Sometimes it's a direct cause and effect that I can point to. Like I know that I shared or said something very vulnerable. And so then the next day I absolutely know why I feel a little bit wrecked. It feels like an actual 
hangover, like an alcohol hangover sometimes. Like you just feel like dehydrated almost from the emotional expenditure. But there are times also when I don't immediately connect the dots. So I don't understand why I'm weepy because I realize that it's not a hormone thing, but I'm feeling very sensitive and I can't identify why. And then I'll have a light bulb moment that, oh, I really gave a piece of myself away. I mean that in the positive way of that term. I really offered a piece of myself up in some way earlier this week. And maybe it didn't seem like a big deal in the moment to say this, that, and the other thing. But here I am a few days later, you know, really feeling raw and exposed. And maybe that thing I shared means more to me than I thought it did. Maybe I misjudged what the response would be. And so I'm, you know, having emotions about that. Like, yes, yes, I get vulnerability hangovers. I think we all do. If you are having one, totally, totally natural, especially if you aren't used to being vulnerable that often. And then last, last question. Molly asked, do you ever struggle with feeling too much after sharing your stuff? Molly, I have to openly do some self-talk before some of these episodes that I put out for you. I still hear that little inner voice that says like, who do you think you are? Or you're getting too big for your britches. Or how narcissistic that you're putting out an episode that's an hour plus of just you blathering on. I hear all of those little negative words and I have to like openly speak to myself the way I would want a friend to speak to me, which is like, this is what you are meant to do. This is what you are good at. Vulnerability is a gift. (laughs) Like all of those things that I have to talk myself into because otherwise I will feel like I have taken up too much space with my thoughts, with my feelings, with the sheer number of minutes that I use on the internet talking. And it's not always about work, by the way. Sometimes I feel too much when I leave a dinner party. If I felt like I talked too much, if I felt like I was a little bit know-it-all-y, I probably was. If I'm harboring some fears that my emotions are misplaced or I'm not feeling the way I'm supposed to or something like that, like something feels out of alignment and I talked about it anyway, that makes me feel like, oh, I I did it wrong. I did too much of it. But here is the thing. Some of us are a lot. I am. I understand that I am a lot and that I am not too much, but just much. (laughs) Like I am a lot. I am much most of the time. And I have to honor who I am and how I am choosing to walk in this world. And I'm choosing it because 42 years of experience has shown me that my gifts are in sharing, are in storytelling, are in connection, and in talking to other people about connection. That is how I've chosen to show up in the world because that is the truest version of myself. And you know that saying, I learned this saying when I was in college, but I come back to it again and again. Do not doubt in the darkness what you knew in the light. Do not doubt in the darkness what you knew in the light. And so when I am having an aligned moment, a God-given moment, any of those things where I know that this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing and saying and sharing, I know it without any any doubts, that then when I'm having a self-doubt moment, when I'm having a moment of darkness, when I'm questioning myself, when I'm feeling insecure, 
that is not the time to give those doubts power. And sometimes doubts are teaching us something and there's something to learn from our second guesses or from rethinking or from little whispers of intuition that might be sending us red flags. Sometimes those doubts need to be given power. But if I am doubting something in the darkness that is something I absolutely knew in the light, then I know that I'm just having an insecure moment. Then I know that that is a lie that is coming up from, you know, mental health stuff, from whatever, and that is not truth. If you understood something to be true in the light of day, don't then use the cover of darkness to slink away and deny your truest self. And I say all that to you from a place of having done all those things, of being sure in the light, of doubting in the darkness, of feeling too much. I have done all of those things that you are asking. I do not have all the answers here. I just have a lot of experience to say that Everything that I preach at you on this show, it works. Sharing yourself, it works. Putting yourself out there, it works. Journaling, it works. So yeah, I'm self-conscious about the too muchness of it all in myself and in my encouragement of you to take up more space and for you to not be afraid of being called too much. But I deeply believe that it's worth it and I want you to believe it too. Speaking of too much and muchness, this has been a joy of an episode. I, this is like so fun for me to hear what's on your mind, to hear what your questions are, but also just the topics that you're obviously swirling around in your own brain. It's just a joy. It's an honor that I get to do this with you. So thank you for listening to this monster-sized episode. I'm going to draw this to a close because we are already deep, deep into the Ask Me Anything idea. But there were a few other questions that I got that I'm taking to the Secret Stuff Patreon. Some of the questions I'm answering over there are about how long we see ourselves living in LA, what is the most challenging thing that Jeff and I disagree on in marriage. Someone asked if I would ever be on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, and I I have a story about that. And then Angela asked if there was Anything that I could go back and change in my life, would I? And what would that be? So those are the questions I'm going to be answering sometime this week over on the Secret Stuff Patreon, which is my private podcast that includes more personal episodes like this one, not as long as this one, but I do an Ask Me Anything on Secret Stuff every single month. And I talk about more kind of personal life stuff over there. There's also bonus content from this show. There's a book club over there. We're doing... Zoom meetings that are really fun. You can sign up for the Secret Stuff Patreon by going to 10thingstotellyou.com slash secret stuff. Thanks for listening to all of this, friends. Now it is your turn to go share something. I'm Laura Tremaine, and you've just listened to the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. You can find the show notes and subscribe to episode emails at 10thingstotellyou.com slash podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 10 Things to Tell You. Remember, this is an interactive podcast. I have 10 things to tell you, and you have 10 things to tell. So take this topic to your journal or a friend or post on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. These episodes are meant to bring connection with others and ourselves 
and spark better conversations. Thanks for listening. Now go share something.